Score Innovation Podcast. Welcome to the Score Innovation Podcast channel. My name is Derek Houseconnect, and I am the Senior Vice President and Natural Catastrophe Manager of the Americas. I am very excited to announce a new podcast that I'll be hosting for SCORE. It will cover many natural catastrophe topics that our industry is currently facing today regarding flood, innovation and modeling, wildfires, North Atlantic hurricane season, climate change, winter storms, and earthquake. There'll be many engaging topics to pique many listeners' interests. It seems that every time a natural catastrophe happens, it is unique and something new is learned from each incident by the insurance industry. By having internal and external experts in some of the episodes, some thought-provoking ideas should take place. Today's discussion will be about the 2021 North Atlantic hurricane season and lessons that we have learned from it. These lessons may lead to new ways of looking at the peril in the future. I'm happy to have both of you on the show. For my first guest, I would like to introduce Kelly. Um, can you please introduce yourself and also talk about the 21 hurricane season and why it has been so unique? Sure, Derek. Um, my name is Kelly O'Neill and I am an AVP of NatCap Pricing here at SCORE and I really appreciate you having me on the podcast today. Um, I would say that probably one of the most notable aspects of the 2021 hurricane season had to be the number of named storms that occurred in the Atlantic Basin. Every year before the start of the hurricane season, NOAA releases predictions of what we can expect to see during the upcoming season. And for 2021, NOAA predicted that there was a 60% chance of us seeing higher than average activity for the year. They predicted that we would see up to 20 named storms, which is higher than the average of 14 named storms per year. And this is based on the most recent 30-year data from NOAA. And then of these 20 named storms, they predicted that there would be up to 10 hurricanes compared to an average of seven and up to five major hurricanes, which is higher than the average of three. So, so Kelly, how did the actual experience compare to their predictions? The 2021 wind season exceeded NOAA's predictions ever so slightly. We ended up having 21 named storms, making 2021 the third most active hurricane season on record. And this is on the heels of the 2020 season, which was another record-breaking year where we had 30 named storms. So I, I guess my question to you is, why were they predicting a more active hurricane season than usual? Yeah, I mean, I think they were predicting a more active than usual hurricane season, partly because we were in a La Nina phase where we typically expect to see more tropical cyclones in the Atlantic basin. During La Nina, the sea surface temperature of the eastern part of the Pacific basin is lower than normal, and this causes shifts in the jet stream and disrupts atmospheric stability. And this has an extensive impact on weather across the globe, uh, disrupting normal weather patterns and impacting the climate. It typically impacts both the Atlantic and Pacific hurricane seasons, but specifically for the Atlantic basin, we expect more tropical cyclones uh, due to the resulting low wind shear, which would typically break up or prevent hurricanes from forming, and from warmer sea surface temperatures, which fuel hurricanes. I would like to mention that La Nina conditions do not necessarily guarantee that we will see increased activity in the Atlantic Basin, 
but history is full of events regularly occurring during La Nina phases where the conditions likely affected the intensity and the track of the storms. Oh, got it, got it. Thanks, Kelly. I'm gonna turn to Ken here. Um, Ken, from an underwriting standpoint, are there some major observations that pop out at you that will affect your view of risk in the future? Thanks, Derek, and thank you for having me on, on the show. My name is Ken Slack. I'm the Senior Vice President of Treaty Underwriting here at SCORE uh, with a special emphasis on catastrophe treaty reinsurance. And I've held the uh, Catastrophe Reinsurance Underwriting Authority since 1991. So uh, and very much in line with Kelly's observations. Simply put, we're seeing the greater frequency. We've seen in the last couple of years where we've gone straight through the alphabet. And frankly, it's hard to harbor an expectation that we're going to see any dilution of that increase in frequency and severity in the near future. You know, the, the models have evolved greatly from, say, 2004, 2005 and had to do so, but I don't think they can rest in their laurels as I feel that nature has a habit of ensuring that further upgrades and revisions on our assumptions of risk will be the order of the day for some time to come. I even think that in the longer term, the effect of climate change may change our accepted view of seasonality of perils. We have a, a, a fixed view of when the hurricane season starts and ends. Well, I think that's open to debate going forward. And potential maximum storm strengths at certain, certain landfall points may need to be re revised. The recent cycle events has also emphasized the impact of demand surge. Now, the models take an, uh, an approach where they average out the impact of demand surge, which is perhaps the only way we have to ensure it is captured within our pricing considerations. But the impact of a clustering of events over a short period of time or a significant events, such as we saw with Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Ida last year, can significantly increase the demand surge dynamic in the short term, spiking lumber costs. And we need to factor in the impact of inflation, which hopefully may only be a temporary uh, spike in inflation, but it's something we need to consider. And at the end of the day, if the models, and thus the underwriter, taking all their information they provided underestimates the exposure, then it's going to lead to an underpricing of that exposure. In addition, over the last couple of decades, we've noted how demographic trends, trends such as our desire to live on or near the coast, as well as the likelihood of increased frequency and severity events, has literally changed our view of risk and needs to be a constant reminder of the growing exposure we can, we can expect to face in the future. Yeah, thanks, Ken. I completely agree with you on that. I, I think, you know, people moving to the coast more is definitely affecting our overall portfolio. Um, I guess I'm going to jump back to, to Kelly quick here. Um, there were eight instances of rapid intensification of storms this year. Um, Ida was probably the most notable. Is there a rapid intensification becoming, is, is it becoming more common, do you think, or, or what, what is your view on that? Sure. Uh, so before I answer that, I think it might be helpful to explain what rapid intensification is. So rapid intensification occurs when the wind speeds of a hurricane increase over the course of 24 hours by at least 30 knots or 35 miles per hour. We tend to see these types of events at the height of hurricane season because that's when the Atlantic is at its warmest. Rapid intensification is not a new phenomenon, but it has gained attention recently because of the number of 2021 events that experience this transition and also because, as you mentioned, um, the notoriety of Hurricane Ida, which intensified twice during its lifespan. 
Now, these types of events are particularly dangerous because they are hard to forecast, and this can lead to increased casualties and property damage if emergency preparation efforts are hindered. So uh, I guess my question for you, Kelly, is do you feel that climate change is contributing to the rapid intensification? Yeah, I mean, since hurricanes are fueled by sea surface temperatures and climate change will likely cause increased sea surface temperatures, there is concern that we could see more rapid intensification of future storms. However, there are other conditions that must also be met in order for a storm to quickly intensify. And this includes things like low vertical wind shear and high atmospheric moisture. So I would say that overall, it's rather difficult to say with certainty whether these types of events are occurring more frequently or that they will continue to occur more frequently. And that's largely because we just don't have enough data. These types of events are very rare and we don't have a long enough historical record to really determine a trend. But the scientific community is working hard trying to distinguish whether the increased intensification activity that we've seen recently is due to increased overall hurricane frequency or the fact that we have a larger sample size, or if it's truly due to an increase in the proportion of hurricanes that undergo rapid intensification. Kelly, those are, are very good points. Um, thank you for that. I, I think from what I'm hearing is that things could actually have been a lot, could be become a lot worse. Um, Ken, we've talked a lot in the past and you're quick to point out that, you know, industries the industry tends to focus on events as they happen, but but what not what could have happened, which could be a lot worse. Um, we've had many near near misses in the past. Do you? I mean, could you give us some examples of that? Yes, yes, certainly. I mean, it, it's a it's a nature of the beast that we calibrate the models on on the historical record, and the historical record is 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 what is what it is, and yet we need to be conscious of how far more severe some historical events could have been. And I'm going to talk briefly about the 2004 and 2005 sequence of, of hurricanes that struck Florida. I mean, with Hurricane Charlie, Charlie was a very, very tight system that went through a rapid intensification, as Kelly alluded to, prior to landfall as a Cat 4 and in, made landfall in Punta Gorda, causing a significant amount of damage to the town. However, the angle of approach Charlie had to the west coast of Florida was such that only a very minor change in course made a significant difference to the expected landfall. Even up to just two hours before actual landfall, the National Hurricane Center was still officially predicting landfall in Tampa Bay. And I'm fully aware that if Charlie, Hurricane Charlie had made landfall in Tampa Bay, the economic impact of that event would have been possibly trebled, if not more. Shortly afterwards, there was a large lumbering system of Hurricane Francis. Hurricane Francis stored over the Bahamas for a couple of days. And Francis was a very different event to Hurricane Charlie. It was truly a lumbering giant. The entire hurricane wind field of Charlie would have fitted within the eye of Francis. And Francis stored off the coast. The National Hurricane Center expected her to remain as a strong Cat 3, even intensified to a Cat 4. However, she stalled, went through an eyewall restructure, lost a bit of power, lost a bit of momentum. Uh, two separate eyewalls were formed and she made landfall as a Category 2 storm. And at the time, the National Hurricane Center had only given approximately a 10% chance of Francis doing exactly that, making landfall as a Category 2. Hurricane Ivan 
Hurricane Ivan was shortly following Hurricane Francis and was one of the longest lasting Cat 5 storms in history. I think he was categorized as a Cat 5 on no less than three occasions as he meandered, as he approached the uh, Gulf of Mexico through the Caribbean. The predicted path of Ivan and the expected landfall site moved westwards with every hourly update from the NHC, starting off on the west coast of Florida, moving across the Panhandle and finally targeting New Orleans itself. And the city was put under watch. The Superdome was prepped as a shelter of large resort as they expected the landfall of, of Hurricane Ivan. But actually, Ivan changed course ultimately and headed north and made landfall in Mobile, <coughs> Mobile Alabama and spared the city. Now, Ivan made landfall as a Cat 3, but because of his history and the strength of the storm, he carried a more significant storm surge even than Katrina in 2005. If Ivan had made landfall as predicted in the New Orleans metropolitan area, the failures of the levees, the subsequent flooding and the catastrophic impact that we saw in 2005 with Hurricane Katrina would certainly have been experienced in 2004 with Hurricane Ivan. Now, we know that the city of New Orleans took time to recover from the worst effects of Katrina. And the sobering thought that I carry around with me and the question I really have no answer to is what would have been society's response to the impact of the above events had they behaved actually predicted by the NHC and that Katrina would have very quickly followed. Katrina still would have happened and would have hit New Orleans just when it was getting back up on its feet after the impact of Hurricane Ivan. And there are a couple of other storms that are worthy of mention, such as Floyd in 1999 and Rita in 2005. So, so Ken, yeah, I mean, you know, very good points on, on some of that kind of scary, scary stuff here. Um, do you do you have other storms worth mentioning? I mean, it, it, it seems like we've had some near misses many times. So, uh, I guess I'll yeah, we have. Yeah, no, yeah, we have, Derek. And there are, and this, you know, maybe because I've been in the game a long time, so I've got this sort of memory of feeling of dread as the uh, as these storms approach. But I mean, everyone in the industry has been brought up to be aware of the impact of Hurricane Andrew in 1992 as being the poster child of a game changer, because uh, Florida had gone being bereft of Category 3 major landfalling hurricanes for so long before Hurricane Andrew. But few recall Hurricane Floyd in 1999. There are many satellite comparisons between the two storms, which you can just, anyone can just Google. And it's, it's, just eye-opening to see that Floyd was four times the size of Andrew, with a recorded comparable low pressure and strength. As it happened, Floyd followed the curvature of Florida's eastern seaboard and made landfall in the Carolinas as a much weaker Category 3. It was a, a loss of record to the Carolinas, I'm not belittling it, but in the scheme of things, the loss gets lost to the historical record and sits within a range of storm systems for economic impact. Had he made landfall in Florida, as feared at the time, it truly was a storm of the century type type event and would have been a, a majorly uh, impactful event to the industry. And Rita, Hurricane Rita in 2005, followed closely on the heels of Hurricane Katrina and threatened the commercial exposure surrounding the, the Sabine Pass in the Gulf of Mexico. And whilst, just whilst we were assessing the impact of Katrina, I recall being very worried over the weekend. I think Luther made landfall on a Sunday. And I was thinking to myself, what would happen if Rita makes landfall where she's expected to be? Because I'm not sure what the industry will look like on Monday. So the immediate response from the model vendors in 2004 and 5 was it was just really another year's data on a long-term view that really would not move the needle overall. But the industry and the prevailing sentiment of many leading scientists was that we were indeed facing a new normal. The phrase the multi-decadal oscillation became the mantra of the day 
and resulted in the revisions of the models to present what they call a near-term view instead of a, a long-term view, like the near-term view being the prudent recommended approach. I think for me, the lesson I think we have to take away from, and it's maybe it's not rocket science, but we have to be completely uh, sort of conscious of the efforts because it's imperative that we keep abreast of the factors driving the level of risk associated with catastrophic windstorm risk. Disciplined underwriting approach alongside a careful and informed use of the models has to be essential in ensuring that insurers and reinsurers achieve sustainable results through both soft and hard markets and look to avoid knee-jerk reactions in price and availability of capacity following a major event or sequence of events. So it's it's been quite a learning curve over the last 30 odd years. <laughs> well, I, th I think it, it, it seems like we learn something new from every single storm that happens. It, it's nothing is ever the same. So so truthfully, it, it's, you know, we you know, we learn from we, we learn from history, but then we also learn something new each time. So I, I think it, it's great. And, uh, Ken, you and myself having so much history and, and Kelly as well. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having the experts on the show to, to share with us today. I really appreciate both of you talking. So um, this was good and, and hopefully very eye-opening. Hopefully it wasn't too negative for the, the audience out there uh, as far as what could happen and gloom and doom. But uh, I think it's, it's always good to um, follow up and, and, and to actually think about things and it's very thought-provoking. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all of our guests for joining today. You can subscribe to the SCORE Innovation Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other audio platforms, and be our first listener to new episodes. If you want to share your insights with us, then send us a message at scorepodcast at score.com. Stay tuned and see you at the next episode of SCORE Innovation Podcast.